Welcome to this week's episode of the podcast. I'm your host, Mark Garrett-Hayes. Today we're speaking with Catherine McEwen, an organizational psychologist, coach, mediator, and trainer based in Adelaide in Australia. Catherine has her own brand, which is called Working With Resilience, and she leads a consortium of like-minded resilience practitioners, which she organizes. And this is, of course, across multiple countries, which makes for a very interesting story today. So we're going to learn about how her business works, how she set her business up, her journey to this point, and what the future holds. This is episode 24. Let's get down to training business. Hey, and welcome to the trainingbusiness.com podcast. Every week, we bring you exciting news and interviews with training business experts and training business entrepreneurs from around the world. Thanks for tuning into today's episode. Here's your host, Mark Garrett Hayes. Welcome. This is the show for training business owners all around the world, people just like you, helping you to learn more, to earn more, and to grow your training and consultancy business. As I mentioned a few moments ago, we're speaking today with a practitioner in resilience in Australia, in Adelaide specifically, and Catherine McEwen is our guest on today's program. Resilience is a buzzword right now. So I'd love to know from Catherine, as you'll hear, can anyone deliver resilience training? What kind of background do you need? And if you're a training business owner with resilience as one of your products, how can you find the right people to represent your brand? As you can hear in the background and chatting with Catherine this morning, it's a gorgeous summer's evening in Adelaide in Australia, 37.5 degrees. I'm, it's Monday morning here in Ireland as I'm recording this. I can't wait for summer. But anyway, I'd like to uh, thank you for tuning in this morning, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Catherine, good morning, and thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure. Just before we um, began recording, I could hear uh, your flip-flops, so (laughs) it's obviously a very warm day where you are. (laughs) Yes, it's very steamy here in Adelaide. It's uh, 37 degrees, so definitely flip-flop and bikini weather for for today, I think. Okay, the mind boggles. (laughs) (laughs) You lead a group of working with resilience experts and you run a training and coaching business in Adelaide and Australia. Tell me something about the business, first of all. It's um, what I call a a consortium, really. I guess I lead a a number of people who are practitioners in the area of workplace resilience. They're sort of coaches, OG, facilitation-type practitioners. And also we have um, a lot of researchers who use our materials as well. So I call it a consortium because um, it's a a fairly large network of people um, who are using our work um, across the world. So um, it's very exciting. What did you do before you became uh, an organizational psychologist and executive coach? And I also see mediator, by the way, on your your profile. So what did you do before you uh, became those three things? I guess professionally, I've always been an organizational psychologist, so that was my first career. But um, I came to coaching more recently, probably about 15 years ago, when coaching became a bit more of an industry. And um, because I work a lot with people in trouble, you know, leaders who are experiencing challenging behaviors or teams in trouble, it was really useful for me to also become a mediator. So I, I sort of still think of myself as an organizational psychologist, I guess. But um, the work I do involves facilitation, coaching, mediation, and sort of range of skills. Okay. And you've also got um, a background with the Australian military in res- reserve capacity. Okay. Did that influence your 
uh, decision to strike out on your own in any way? Or what, what, was, the, what was the influence of that uh, period on your career? Well, um, I was only 21 and I had a, a troop of um, transport um, uh, guys that I was leading. And so it taught me an awful lot about leadership. So I became very interested in leadership. Um, they also taught you how to train. So it was in the days of um, overhead projectors. You had about four lessons on how to develop a slide. It's all that sort of stuff. But, but what it did, it gave me enormously great grounding in how to actually design and run training. So I think that really held me instead. And certainly, I'm not sure whether it influenced my career, but it certainly was a brilliant skill set that I could bring to the work I do for sure. Okay, so at some point then, you obviously decided to do your own thing, to strike out on your own. Uh, what, what prompted you to go solo? And to take that leap, rather than you know working as a as an employee somewhere. Oh, absolutely! That that happened very early in the piece. I was working for one of the big five accounting companies, and um, I quickly realised that the clients weren't actually buying the the company; they were actually buying me. And so I got quite smart in how consulting worked, and I decided to go out on my own. And but quite frankly, I'm I'm a bit of a um, a free spirit, and um, I also don't suffer fools gladly. So. Um, I find it quite difficult to work, work under the the um, direction of other people. So it's always really suited me to, you know, pave my own way, I suppose, and, and decide what I, I want to do. So that was very much a motivator. So it's a per- personal aspect plus the, um, the the working in the big five. But the, I, didn't, I didn't see a values match either. So it's very good to be able to work on your own because, you know, that, you, you know, you can actually um, – do what you do what you need to do according to your own moral compass and values if you like that's important to me so this was really a decision you made internally it wasn't something that uh, you know externally prompted you to go solo no no um i you know, obviously there were opportunities to uh, to to get the work in the area i was working but it was very much a, a personal decision um on this is the way i want to go any regrets about that oh gosh no no <laughs> Definitely not. Um, I did try um, to work in-house for um, three days a week a few years ago just to see what it was like. And uh, I found it really, really difficult being confined um, by organisational requirements. So there's never been any regrets. And I think as a mother also, it's been fabulous for my sons to understand entrepreneurship. So um, that's an, an extra added value, I think, too. So so with entrepreneurship comes uh, the risk of ups and downs. What was your biggest challenge to date and how did you overcome that in your training business? I think my biggest challenge has always actually been um, the personal confidence to charge what you need to charge. Um, and that sounds like a weird um, thing to say. I expect, you know, you probably expect that I'll say it was actually about competition or opportunities. But um, I find particularly there, there is a little bit of a gender difference too. And I have lots of conversations with my female colleagues around the confidence to be able to charge uh, what you're worth and um, that's the that's the issue I guess when you're self-employed is you're really charging for yourself and so that's always been um, a little bit of difficulty for me and so how I've overcome that is basically getting validation from my clients of the worth and 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 you know putting the price accordingly Uh, but I've always found um, opportunities are always there in Adelaide in particular even though I, I, I work certainly outside of Adelaide in Adelaide, you have to be um, very opportunistic because it's not a very large place. And so, um, you know, as new new um, themes were coming in, like, you know, assessment centres and coaching, you had to sort of constantly be ahead of the game in terms of actually being able to have that offering and be a bit flexible as well. So um, 
but in a way those challenges have been really useful because I've had such a cross-section of experiences um, because we have a, um, a, a, a situation in South Australia where you have to do lots of things for lots of people in order to be able to be viable in your business. Right. And in terms of the the team itself, you, you lead a consortium, that's what you said. W- what does working with resilience, and because that's a fantastic buzzword right now, isn't it? You know, lots of people listening to this program recognize the importance of the word resilience. Um, it's something which comes up again and again, and certainly it's a topic which seems to be very much um, in demand right now as, as a service. So, so what does working with resilience uh, offer clients and why does someone need resilience products and services? And this question now is, is really not focused on your business, but let's just talk about the, the topic of resilience and why someone would need this in the form of products and services from a company. Absolutely. So I might start with the why, Mark, because um, that's obviously the one that's driving resilience as a buzzword. So what I was finding probably about eight, nine years ago was this word resilience was starting to creep into conversations in the workplace. And I'd never really had that before because, I mean, as a psychologist, there's huge amounts of work in community resilience and clinical resilience, etc. But this word was starting to appear in, in workplace conversations and people were starting to ask for resilience. And um, it seems to be a combination of factors that have come together all at once. And I'm sure, you know, people listening to this today will be able to identify with, firstly, we're trying to do more with less all the time. So it doesn't matter whether you go out to a not-for-profit or a, um, a, um, a corporate or a government organisation, you have the same theme of having to do more with less. But then overlaying that, um, we're certainly in a society where people expect more. And we have, uh, I work with surgeons who tell me that, you know, their patients have already Googled what operation they're going to get and how much it's going to cost. So we've got a very informed community. um, And I think that then flows through to expectations, whether you're on a call centre or or the um, emergency department, whatever um, front of service you actually might be. And then, of course, on top of that, we have this incredible change, transformational change that's happening um, at all levels. So um, it's fairly rare to find an organisation that isn't going through some sort of change, whether it's a merger, a restructure, or even just a change in leadership or, or CEO, through to whole industry changes that they're having to adapt to or possibly want to be the disruptor in. So it's almost like all of these factors have come together um, and people are starting to recognise that you need a different skill set. So I think the skill set that's actually served us really well in terms of our own self-management, in terms of our leadership and our teamwork that's worked in the past, I don't think is the same skill set that's going to serve us in this new environment. And that's really what prompted me to start to look at well, what does serve us. You know, So if we're able to be able to master our stress and adapt and be proactive around um, our, our careers and our, and our work, what is it that we actually have to do as a person? What do we need to do together as a team? And what do we need to do as leaders? So I've been really interested in what that looks like. So the journey simply been trying to answer a problem that people are coming to you with. And, and, and one of the interesting things about the word resilience, because as you're right, it's the buzzword, and it doesn't seem to be letting off, is that whenever people use the word resilience, there's usually a challenge behind it. That challenge could be 
you know, a, um, a restructuring where people are going to lose jobs. It could be um, poor leadership. It, um, and, and I find that um, I get a lot of the same requests that are now badge resilience. So teams in trouble. Now it's build the resilience of the team. Um, manager from hell is now, it's now build my resilience. So the word has become attached, I think, to lots of issues. But the bottom line is when people ask for it, it's usually because there's a challenge or a problem that they need to to to, um, to solve or at least um, try to solve because it's often not not an answer. So it's a very long long response to the why, but that's um, uh, very much I think what's happening. And and the interesting thing is that seems to be international as well. So um, um, you know I've been working um, recently in New Zealand and North America and Europe, and um, it doesn't seem to matter where in the world you go in Malaysia. Um, those um, challenges um, are becoming a bit of a pressure cooker for people in the workplace. Are you finding that, Mark, as well or, or not? Yeah, it's it certainly people are, are more aware of the word resilience before. Um, I think in, in my experience, it would have been, in, I think in my youth, something that would be taken to be a quality. Someone's resilient, which means that they might be able to get themselves back up off the ground after they've been knocked over and, and polish themselves off and get back in the fight. But uh, in an organizational capacity, it's it's dealing with the change. It's dealing with all the kinds of volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity, which um, is another term, VUCA, which um, I've come across as well. I think it's it's a quality that we need to have in a team, uh, in a in a in a group of people working together to be able to to deal with um, a range of challenges. Uh, uh, political, geopolitical, environmental. But I think in, in a personal capacity, it's something that anyone in entrepreneurship has to have. It's an intrinsic quality to say, oh, that didn't work. Uh, let's try something else. And not to lie down, to curl up on a ball and say, this isn't going to work. This is not for me. I think entrepreneurs, and you're one of them, um, is, is, is a person who's able to take the knocks uh, with the victories and get back in the game. It's resilience, isn't it? Absolutely. And it's interesting you said about, you know, whether you're a resilient person. I mean, I think for a long time there was a body of thought that, you know, we were born resilient. We had it in our DNA, but there's now a movement to think of resilience as a state. So it really is about how you are operating in your current challenges and environments. And one of the things I've noticed, particularly with leaders I work with in a coaching capacity, is it's the amazing leaders that I see burnt out. You know, it's the highly conscientious, driven leaders, you know, that you might have seen three months before and gone, wow, they're resilient. Um, so, so, so the good thing about that, it means that, well, the bad thing is none of us can claim to be resilient because we're only in a state of that at the moment. But it also means all of us have capacity to actually build our resilience. And that's what I've been particularly interested in. And I've also been particularly interested in the fact that you and I might be resilient and we might work with three or four other people who are also resilient at the moment. But if you put us together, we actually don't necessarily create a resilient team. Because if we're not alignment in our values and our purpose and our support and the way we, we manage our pressures, we actually can be a dysfunctional team. So that's been another um, fascination for me is, you know, these are the things we have to do to get our act in order, but there's something quite different that we need to do together. Um, and that's what I've been researching um, and looking at is what is that? <laughs> and more importantly, being able to label it in a behavioural way. So, in other words, 
what do you have to do? What do I have to do individually? What do we have to do as a team? What does our leader need to do? So we're very practical actions that can enable us to be resilient at the moment in our environment, you know, as you say, whether it's, you know, political, environmental, financial, whatever that might be. So um, it's uh, definitely a work in progress, I think, the whole area. Well, that's very interesting. You've also, um, your brand is working with resilience. Is, is that something you've trademarked? Yes, and I purposely actually um, made sure that my the name of the business was um, Resilience and that my, my toolkit is called Resilience at Work. So, again, it's the whole Googling bit, isn't it, and the branding of it. So um, I purposely um, uh, did that. And was that laborious or, or difficult to do, to, to arrange and to get that uh, trademark secured? No. It's, it's simply a legal situation where you have to get, um, you know, obviously you, I, I've got a lawyer who helped me with that, but you have to put in, um, yeah, the various paperwork and what it is a bit laborious, but I guess um, useful. Yeah, it's, it's something I'm doing right now, actually, uh, in with um, a trademark attorney in the States and one in uh, Ireland. So that's something which will be the subject of a future podcast. Um you, what is the benefit? What's what's the benefit um, of of a business, a training business, a consultancy business, building its own toolkit? Because this is something you've done. You've developed your own framework. Um, I'm not sure whether this is something you've done on your own or in conjunction with other OD uh, psychologists. Um, but just tell us about that. What is the benefit of of an organisation? using its own toolkit or creating its own toolkit rather than going out to the market and and taking someone else's licensed product and using that instead? Well, for me, it's control and creativity. So um, in answer to did I do it on my own, so um, because it's a um, validated research-based framework, it has to start with a research study. So um, I'm quite active at the University of South Australia, so I collaborated with academics who are far better at me than um, at statistics. And so it started with academic papers. So we've had to write academic papers um, to develop the model, but the whole commercialisation has been um, driven driven um, personally. But what the benefit is that, um, and it's a bit like books, you know, I mean, it's Quite interesting about the whole self-publishing of books um, at the moment is that because I've self-published and I've actually had a publisher is um, if if it's your IP and you're running it then you have total control over the look the branding what you deliver out to the marketplace and importantly for me I also control pricing so one of the um, things that I was quite passionate about is that a lot of the instruments and um, frameworks, not so much frameworks because they can be generally used, but we have we have measures, some assessment measures of resilience as part of our toolkit. And um, quite often these measures are priced such that only leadership can do them and, um, and sometimes priced so that only executives can actually undertake them. Um, so I've been very um, passionate about making sure that we develop something that's accessible for everyone in an organisation because you can only get true sustainable change uh, when everyone can be part of the journey, if you like. So the cost control has been a really important one for me. I also do a lot of work in not-for-profit, so I will, oft I will often discount um, in, in the not-for-profit. So, again, I have total 
control of the costing. Uh, creativity, uh, you know, what sort of, well, the latest product we've just developed is we've done some reflection cards. Again, it's quite exciting to be able to do that yourself rather than buy something which might be off the shelf and licensed, which you're not allowed to shift or change and might not have the flexibility uh, for what you need. So it's not that I've never bought off the shelf things. Of course I have. We all have. I've been um, a long career in as an organizational psychologist. I've used lots of things um, over that career. But it's extremely exciting to be in the box seat of doing something yourself. And and your products are obviously in demand by other people. Have you people coming to you and saying, can we license your product for our business? So so we, we have a certification process. So um, coaches, OG people, trainers come and they do our two-day certification, which then allows them to um, to, to use, use the products and the models. And we've got a lot of resources as well that go with that. Um, so in terms of licensing, um, I don't really have any um, license arrangements, but I do have a very, um, I've, I've got people who lead the consortiums in different areas. So I've got, for example, I've got Catherine Carr in Canada and Professor Craig Rund in Florida and so on. So we have people who are leading the consortium in that area, but I've avoided that whole licensing situation and the legality of that. And you work with other consultants in your consortium. You've just named uh, two of them. How did you find and decide which practitioners were the right people for your brand? One came to, uh, a couple have come to me and others have actually been on referral. But for me, it's about the values um, um, alignment. Um, and um, I've not wanted, you know, to deal with large corporates because then it all becomes about money and licensing and legalities. I very much preferred to find people who seem to have similar value set to me um, and, and, you know, do want to do good in the world. It sounds a bit um, cliche, but you can do enormous good in the world in this type of area um, because you're actually helping people to live more fulfilling lives at work and people spend a lot of time at work. Um, yeah, so I've sort of done it that way, really, the, the values alignment and introductions. And um, in fact, probably three of them have come from introductions. Yeah, the reason I asked the question is because very often people, let's say, have their own training business or consultancy, and then they think, you know, I'm, I'm getting asked to do a lot more than I can do myself. I need to bring someone in. How do I go out and find the right people I can rely upon to represent my brand when I'm not there. Mm-hmm. And that's extremely difficult. I think it's one of the growing pains of getting bigger. Um, I guess I'm a business-to-business model. So even though I have this team, if you like, of people who collaborate with me in the consortium, largely what we're doing is we're equipping um, small businesses um, or, or, or single coaches or, or whatever it might be uh, to go out and do that. So while I want I want the model not to be, um, you know, to, the integrity of what we do to be kept. I'm largely reliant on, the, you know, them to do that in, within their own business. And the interesting thing about this work is um, most, you know, I'd say 99% of people that come to this certification, because they have a, a passion about well-being and, you know, engagement at work, they they tend to be nice people anyway, funnily enough. <laughs> yeah. Um, so they, they tend to have that value set um, anyway. So that's quite different, I suppose, from, you know, 
well, it's, it's not unique to our industry, but it would be quite different from licensing maybe an accounting system or something like that. And the certification you've just mentioned, that, that's your own internal certification, right? Yes, correct. What kinds of qualifications or experience then uh, would a consultant, someone uh, in training, for example, need to be able to legitimately deliver resilience products and services to uh, a client? You need to have a good sound understanding of organisational behaviour, whether that's, I mean, if you're just interested in facilitating and running workshops, then you don't actually need the coaching skill, but you need to be able to understand the language of organisations and have some real understanding of behaviour at work. Um, So you don't actually need a qualification. we, we do coach you skills practice and facilitation practice as part of the certification. But I would say that the majority of people who come are already very skilled and accomplished coaches, facilitators, psychologists, counsellors, mediators, and we do have some managers, but they're managers who have quite a good skill set um, around coaching and mentoring. So we've not um, we played around with whether or not we would um, put some criteria around qualifications. And um, that just became too difficult. So, um, and, and part of the certification decision was to do some quality control as well so that, you know, people aren't just taking the work and, and implementing it without some degree of support and assistance and resourcing to be able to do it. So the certification was never a money-making thing. It was always a quality thing, making sure the quality of our network was good. Speaking of money then, uh, Catherine, how do you decide what to charge clients for your various programs? Because that's always something which, you know, uh, is on people's minds, particularly if they're launching a new product, uh, some new course, some new program or workshop. How do I know what to charge and and how to calculate what to charge for my programs? Yeah, so um, in terms of certification, there's lots of certifications out there. So I went mid- middle of the road, so I looked at what a high-end sort of two-day certification was, what a low-end certification was, and went middle of the road. And to be honest, right at the beginning, because I didn't know this, you know, whether this was, was worthy of anything, um, uh, discounted it to colleagues so that I just got colleagues whose opinions I really respected to get on the ground and then to you know, give me feedback. So then I then I was able to moderate the price up because I knew it was adding value. But um, um, so that's how I did the certification. I think other things that, you know, a daily rate type scenarios and, um, you know, clearly I also charge so that um, the coaches can add on because I'm a business to business model. So I have to charge um, so that they can actually still add on for their particular market. So it's um, sort of complex. Um, but yeah, so the short answer to certification is, is was market research. How do you go about generating business? Uh, new clients, how do you market yourself so that people, when they think of resilience in the workplace, they think of your business? Uh, I do a little bit on LinkedIn, a little bit on social media, but I've been a reluctant um, um, person um, in the social media. The majority of my work um, in the early stages came from presentations, conferences and industry um, events and um, referrals from the people who actually did the credentialing themselves. So I'm, I've been, I've, I've not paid for any advertising or marketing. It's simply been 
seen, I think, word of mouth and reputation that's actually allowed us to grow. And then, of course, because we're business to business, as as we um, embrace each new person to our network, then, of course, that exponentially um, improves um, the, the consortium um, that way. So I'm less and less in the service delivery now. In fact, it's... It's hard to do too much service delivery because then you're actually going to be in competition with your network. So I don't do as much delivery. Um, I'm relying on on training and supporting others to do that themselves. If you were doing this from scratch, what would your advice be about uh, marketing activities which would be effective in in getting a, a new product or training company noticed? You mentioned conferences, and I, I have to agree with you on that one. Anything else come to mind to quickly get to market? Um, well, I don't really call this marketing, but one of our biggest successes has actually been um, the research papers that we originally did um, got enormous interest um, in the academic sector. And we have about 70 international studies at the moment using our scales. And so um, in an area which is like resilience, where there's enormous amount of noise, People are very much looking for evidence base. And so the research and promoting the research and the researchers themselves publishing in this area has actually been a really good marketing thing, which wouldn't necessarily translate to other products. But for me, that's been a, a really good way of differentiating myself in the marketplace. And we have, we still have people who will come to us because it's an evidence-based research um, situation and, and, you know, they've seen the LinkedIn posts about research, for example. Um, yeah, so, so, but I definitely would say presentations and conferences always, 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 um, because I've never been to one where it didn't actually translate into work. But, of course, you have to go there equipped with all your, um, you know, your, brochures and all those sorts of things and all your add-ons. It's not like you can just go, turn up and present. You've actually got to have all your um, promotional information and your websites and all those sorts of things sorted as well. I find websites don't sell anything, but you have to have one. But um, I've, um, I find, you know, I mean, you can have your shopping carts and that, but unless you are very heavily into the um, uh, development of the of, um, you know, click to sale or whatever it might be, uh, I found the website's not not a marketing tool at all. They're simply a, uh, a presence. And I think a lot of people think if they build the website, that's all they need to do. I'd say no. You've written also books on the subject of resilience. You mentioned self-publishing early on in in, in uh, our chat a few moments ago. Um, w- have these been useful in establishing credibility? I would imagine the answer is yes, but I'd like to hear your views on that, the, sub- the idea of writing a book to establish subject matter expertise in the marketplace. Yes, I think um, there is something about a book that people then think that you, um, you know more. <laughs> um, however, I, I do think that's becoming more and more diluted in this world of self-publishing now um, because, you know, it's very, very easy now to self-publish and some of the, the, um, the books out there are questionable quality. Um, and so I'm th- I think that might be waning. Um, but where I found the books to be incredibly good is um, – I, I, I've written four books. The first two, I didn't do this in mind, but the second two, which I'm going to talk about now, I did this very much in mind. I decided that the books were going to be part of my marketing and my workshop resources. 
So right from the beginning, they were written as um, books that actually could be used as part of the workshops, could be used as part of the coaching so that you can write in them. And then I pared them down into workbooks as well. So we have these books and workbooks. And that's allowed me to sell lots and lots because trying to um, sell a book now, I mean, anyone can write one. It's actually marketing is selling it and more importantly, distributing, which is incredibly difficult. So unless you go to like Create Space, um, which is part of Amazon and they, you know, it's um, print on demand and the quality I find you don't have any control over. Um, so I've had to do that even though I didn't want to because I've got a version in French and um, we had to do that. Um, yeah, it's... Um, I suggest you, if you're going to write a book, why are you writing it? And um, if, if it's to make money, you probably need to reconsider it <laughs> unless you do what I'm suggesting, which is make it part of a resource that, you, that becomes part of your product. Um, if you're doing it just to have a profile, well, that's fine. Um, but again, how you market that and get a profile. And so um, the um, so I've self-published and I've had a publisher. The tricky bit with publishers is they still expect you to largely do a lot of your marketing and you have very limited control over what the book looks like, you know, the cover and the quality, and, and you certainly get very little um, by way of, um, of royalties. But the short answer is yes, it can often help with credibility yeah someone said that to me a while ago it's it's a 20 dollar uh business card <laughs> i'm not sure if that's the real really ethical reason to write a book but that's a fair fair approximation of, of the, the the potential benefits of writing a book it certainly se separates you from everyone else when you've written a book on the subject because um it it, it separates you from the people who think they know what they're talking about uh, as opposed to the people who know what they're talking about, because that's the proof. It's tangible. You can read it and you can make up your own mind. Where is the brand going to be in two years' time and how are you going to get there? Um, I, the brand will simply be um, out there more. So um, I'm working at the moment on um, a couple of other countries, which where we're not at the moment. So working on getting some people who will be happy to lead the consortium. So there's some um, somewhere in, you know, some working in the Africa, South Asia, Southeast Asia areas. Um, so in two years' time, I'm hoping that we will have a very much um, a, a larger global network of practitioners who are taking this work out to industry. Don't ask me numbers. <laughs> <laughs> that was my next I'm, question. I'm, yeah, I'm not. Look, I, I have no people won't like to hear this, but I, I'm not a business plan person. I may go with my gut and take the opportunity and um, you know there's obviously a bit of a plan behind it, but um, yeah, I've, um, I'm certainly not someone with the KPIs and the structure and all sorts of things. as I say, I'm a free spirit, so it's um, to uh, yeah, but things things seem to work and, and I think it's um, for me, it's picking the people, the right relationships, people you can trust and you know are going to do the right thing. And um, I think I've, I've got pretty good intuitive judgment around people and I also invest a lot in the people who work with me as in the network and I think all of that um, fulfills itself. So they can have all their strategic plans and business plans. If I can support them, then they'll go forth and um, and, and conquer, <laughs> conquer if you like.
Well, look, we'll we'll follow your um, your story over the next uh, few years, um, and certainly I hope to speak to, with you again at some point in the future. Um, where can our listeners find out more about you, your brand, and whether it's on social media or LinkedIn uh, and your website? Yeah, so they can um, so they can go to my LinkedIn, which is Catherine McEwen, and our, our website is Working with Resilience com.au and um, I'm coming over to UK and Ireland in um, in June hopefully so I might see someone well you're not coming here for the good weather that's for sure <laughs> no no it's all for Brexit oh really <laughs> don't even mention Brexit no <laughs> it's too early well listen Catherine it's been wonderful having you on the show and, and thank you for taking the time out of what sounds like a gorgeous summer's evening uh, in Australia to come on the show and, and talk to me and our listeners My pleasure, Mike. Thank you so much. That's it for today. Thank you once again for your time in taking 40 minutes approximately to listen to this episode. It's wonderful to know that uh, people out there are listening to the show. So thank you once again for your time and listening to the show. And I'd like to ask you to subscribe to future episodes because this helps us to get the kind of ratings which help us to attract other experts and subject matter experts on the program, which of course helps you in your training business. If you are a training business owner listening to this, please let me know how I can help you and what you'd like to hear in future episodes. Because although I have a list of the kinds of topics I will be talking about soon, I very much want this to be a program that serves you. So if you can let me know what is on your mind, what keeps you up at night, what worries you, what motivates you, what you'd love to know more about from other people, this is the kind of thing that is really important and helps us to steer the direction of the program. I'd also like you to leave a rating on iTunes if you've got the time. Much appreciated if you could. Uh, We're nearing the end of Q1, as I said uh, last time, and we're going to be talking about something very soon, which is how do you make Q2 a success? This is a training business podcast, so all of the things which make for a successful training business tend to be the kinds of things that we talk about. Coming up soon, we've got those business ideas, but we've also got some really interesting guests coming up on the show, some really high-profile training business owners, and I can't wait to share those episodes with you. So keep listening. Thanks for your support. Bye for now. once more for listening to this episode of the trainingbusiness.com podcast. Go to trainingbusiness.com and subscribe right now to be notified of great competitions, upcoming VIP episodes, and amazing special offers to help you succeed in your training business. See you next time.